Good morning. Would you, would you open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew? <clears throat> good morning to you in Wilmington. It's good to be with you in spirit. <clears throat> the Matthew chapter 1 is where we'll start this morning. In this Christmas season, we're spinning around uh, the notion of allowing some Christmas carols to sort of set us on our way into the Word. This morning's hymn, uh, Carol, was, What Child Is This?, which is a question. Uh, In the carol, and even in the title, is almost an ironic wonder. Like, how is this possible? And I thought what we would do this morning is look to four, uh, several passages, four in fact, several passages about Christ, different perspectives of his advent, and uh, answer for ourselves, what, what is meant by Christ coming the way he did? So we're going to start here in Matthew, which begins with a genealogy <clears throat> or an ancestry line. And let me say a word or two about genealogies first. Uh, this is kind of a, a hip, trendy thing these days, genealogies. The people, I find, like to talk about genealogies now more than uh, previous times in my life. <clears throat> There's these genetic things you can do. Is it 23 and Me that'll tell you all about your uh, gene code? Um, I'm Cajun, so I'm somewhat fearful of doing that uh, for what we might learn. Uh, but uh, but when people do these ancestries, ancestry.com or whatever, whatever it is, .com, they, the typical way that we do our research is we start with ourselves, and then we branch out. Uh, so I have parents, and they have parents, and it, it looks like a tree, right? It has this sort of spreading effect as we go back in time. And when you do that, there's, I think for most of us, if you're like me, there's this subtle hope that you'll find somebody important that you can name drop. Like when you end up in the comparative family line talk, you know, so uh, you want to have that humdinger, that really good one. Because I hear this. I hear this when I visit with people. Uh, they will eventually, you know, talk about their family line and somewhere in it, in a very nonchalant, matter-of-fact sort of way, is this end, you know, Charlemagne. Charlemagne's also my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. I don't know if you can see the, the jaw. Yeah, they have this sort of connective tissue. Like before they did their ancestry, they were meaningless. But now that they're related to Charlemagne, now they're somebody. You know, you're fine how you are, by the way. You don't you need to be related to Charlemagne. So, I, you know, I, I think we, many of us, most of us, maybe all of us sort of have that, that desire to be related to somebody famous. I, I have that person, but I'm not going to tell it to you because I'm mature but it was Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> but uh, it's not here or there. The scary thing is on this, I don't, ha- I don't have the time to say what I'm going to say, but is I'm related to him by marriage, so his somewhat ailing wife. And I'm not even sure, but I don't want to do the real thing and find out I'm not. <laughs> so I don't even know if I am or not, but that is a little bit how it is. We start with ourselves, and we find... We build out of ourselves, and we look, we're looking back in our, our family tree. 
uh, for sometimes to sort of build an, another story of how, how you are where you are. And that's how Matthew starts. Uh, at least, immediately it starts this way. It doesn't stay this way for very long. Look at the very first verse of the New Testament. So if we were going to try to say, what child is this? Let's look at his lineage. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now you see how he went back there? Just like we do. Je- Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title, so it's saying something. Christ means Savior or anointed one. The Hebrew word would be Messiah. So what Matthew is actually doing is through the lineage of Jesus, he's reflecting the layered hope of the Hebrew people. So the Hebrew people's first hope anchors in Abraham. God called Abraham. Okay, there was no such thing as a Jew. There was no such thing as a Hebrew before Abraham. Abraham is the first of their people. A new people was started with Abraham. God took him and he made a promise to him. And the biggest part of that promise was, God said, I'm going to make you a people, and through you, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. That's, that's our hope, our distinct historic hope, begins with the promise that God gave to Abraham. That God is going to use Abraham and his people to bless all of the world one day. And so that That promise and a few others that were given to Abraham and the patriarchs sit as the first, the bedrock of the Jewish hope, the Hebrew hope is there. And then years and years, hundreds of years later, in fact, during the line of the kings, there was a good king by the name of David who had a heart after the Lord. And the Lord made another promise, a layered promise, a promise that gave greater clarity to the first promise. He said to King David, your kingdom, your kingship, the line of David will endure forever and Through you will come a king where an everlasting kingdom will be established. And so that added to the hope, right? There was this hope that through the people of God, the people of Abraham, excuse me, the whole world will be blessed. And now we know that that people will be led by a king in an eternal kingdom. And then around the time of exile, the prophets began to give even greater clarity to this. And they began to use words like Messiah, Savior. And in those words, there was this third layer, which is this king of these people is going to actually be a savior of mankind who's going to rule in justice and righteousness like his father David, but will execute judgment like God. And here in the very first verse, Matthew says, Jesus is that one. He is the culmination of, of the various, la- all of the layers of the Hebrew hope. Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now what's interesting is, now following this is a long lineage. And we're not going to read it all, uh, partly because there's really complicated names. And either I would mess them up or I'd practice so much that I wouldn't mess them up. And then you'd be like, that guy like practiced that for hours. That's weird. So I, I couldn't find a not weird way except to say it's here. And, and, but what's different about it when you look at it is it doesn't start with Jesus. It starts at the other extreme of the line. So verse 1, Jesus, David, Abraham. Verse 2, 
Abraham. And he begins to work from Abraham to Jesus. And as he works from Abraham to Jesus, he has 14 generations between Abraham and David, 14 generations between David and the exile, and 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. That's the way he describes it. Okay, so you get to the very end and it, it, it terminates at, at Jesus in verse 16. But the way this is arranged is not starting with ourselves and working backwards. It's starting with Abraham and working forwards. So it, very much a lineage. It's following a line. And in doing this, in presenting it this way, which is not the normal way, okay? It's not the way verse 1 shows up. It's not the way you and I typically talk. There's another genealogy in the Gospels, by the way, in Luke, where he starts with Jesus and works back in the normal fashion. But here, he starts with Abraham, and it's almost as if as the story, the story of the Hebrew people unfolds, he's saying, just follow this story. Just keep following the story. This story, follow the story where it goes. And when you follow the story where it goes, it ends at Jesus the Christ. That's what he's doing. He's saying, Jesus is the end of the story. And not like, not like the caboose, not that kind of end. Jesus is the purpose. He's the goal. He's the reason. He is where the story has been headed the whole time. That's what he's saying here. So why does it matter? Well, it matters uh, because most of our book is the Old Testament. And when you open the Bible to the Old Testament, you should have in the back of your mind, wherever you are in the Old Testament, this, this story is heading towards Jesus. The whole Old Testament is always heading towards Jesus. Jesus is not being derived by God along the way. Jesus is why the story, the whole story, is on the way to get to him. So when we appreciate this, when Matthew starts this way, not only for his Hebrew brothers and sisters who might maybe likely were the recipients of this, but even for us, we know that when we, when we go to the Old Testament, we should know it's on the way. It's always on the way. The whole Old Testament is set up for the story of Christ. So we could say, what child is this? Well, we know this from the first verse of the Gospels. He is the Savior. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the culminating hope of all of the promises that were given to the people of God. They're found in Christ. That's the first thing we see. Let's look at another one. Look at Matthew chapter 2. Just turn the page, if you would. If that's the child's lineage, this, this is, uh, might be an example of the child's visitor's I want to read about 12 verses to you of chapter 2, verse 1. So now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. In assembling all the chief priests and scribes 
of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, in all that reading, you I hope you might have seen or can recall a repetition of the themes that we saw in, in Matthew chapter 1. We saw Jesus as a king. We saw he's worthy of worship. We heard about the city of David or Bethlehem. We saw that he was foretold by the prophets, that the prophets were anticipating this. Those things were there, but, but there's new things that we see here. In fact, I think this story, which we've gotten very comfortable with because of the Christmas season, but this story is actually very strange in light of the first chapter. The first chapter, the story of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, he's a king, the son of Abraham, he's the king, right? He's the king and savior. Here's his lineage, here's his pedigree. He's the king. You have the sense of the king has come, and then the second chapter begins with a very subtle arrival. Apparently nobody knew he was coming. He was a total surprise. If Jesus is the point of the whole Old Testament, how is it so surprising? Here's what's worth noting in this story. That those who are close, close to the story, are ignorant of what's happening. And those who are far get to see it. Those who should know, don't know. And those who have no business knowing, do know. Those who grew up around the word, around the stories, around the hopes, around the dreams, around the dinner table, around the seasons, around the holidays, around all those things, those people, right under their nose, it's happening, and they don't see it. And people far, far away, who likely have very little, if anything, to go from, but seem to be willing to follow God, They're the ones who get to kneel at the feet of Christ. That is worth noting. That the promised king who would save, we should note the promised king who would save the whole world is not even that welcomed. It's not a welcomed notion by the people of God in the story. Look at the third verse. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. You can imagine, a king might be troubled by the notion of the birth of a king. Um, a king who's neither of the line of David 
and barely Jewish would be nervous, troubled at the birth of the king of the Jews. But even those around him have grown to appreciate the life that they fostered under this king. And they're troubled. Why does this matter? I think this matters because this story tells us just how missable Jesus is. This is, I think, serves as a very soft warning to humankind. That while Jesus is findable, he is also profoundly unfindable. You you may not find him. And I'm not saying that he's hidden. Jesus is not hiding. He's not hiding at all in the story. He's five miles away from Jerusalem. That's where Bethlehem is. It's like right down the street. And the word of God tells us, hey, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And wise men come into the capital city and say, where is he? So it's not as though he's hiding. But it is as though he's missable. This might be why the Bible calls them wise men, because they're wise. Are you wise to the Savior? Just think about this. Think, place yourself in the story. Think about your setting. Think about, because he's findable, but he's so missable. Think about the kids and the people that are close to you. you know, it's, it's not enough to grow up with the stories. It's good. I hope you grow up with the stories. It's not enough. You can still miss them, right? It's not enough that, that your mom grew up with the stories and she tells them to you. He is missable. It's not enough that you've made a habit or a process of being among the stories and the hopes. And the, can you imagine how many hundreds of years this has been the hope of the Hebrew people, the Messiah? It's been their distinct hope. And he was missed. I might add this to the list of what child is this. He's the savior. He's a king. He's the hope of the world who, if you're not willingly and longingly looking for him, is missable. Even if he's right under your nose. Let's look at another passage. Luke chapter 1. If you can go to Luke 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And I'm going to pick up in the 26th verse of the first chapter. So if we looked at the child's lineage, and if we looked at the child's visitors, sort of the people who brought, you know, new, new parents of new, new kids in this church get meals. We bring meals to their door. The wise men, they were the people who brought meals to Jesus, okay? So his, his lineage, his visitors, and this third one is how he was conceived. How was uh, the Christ conceived? This is Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Let me read it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. 
and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Now, by this point, I hope you're hearing the repetition of the themes. Son of David, King of Israel, everlasting King. These are, these are surfacing. But what, what else is, what's worth noting here? I think on the one hand, What's worth noting is that Jesus is coming in the natural human way. He's born of a woman. He's he's a baby. That he's coming into the world in the exact same fashion that you came into the world. He's coming to the world like humans come to the world. He's a baby. That's the first thing that's worth noting. But on the other hand, Jesus' conception is very... I want to say non-human. I think the right word would be superhuman. He's conceived of God. He's God. So he's from a woman, but he's not from a man. He's a baby, but he is the son of God. The church has for many years called this a mystery. uh, Just because... I feel like I can understand, and I'm telling you confessionally, I can say these things and I can fully understand the first phrase and then I can fully understand the second phrase. But if I have all the phrases in my head at the same moment, uh, I kind of, there's this warm sort of angsty, it's bigger than me. There's more happening here. Like I'm saying correct phrases, but not plumbing the depths of the idea. That's how I feel. I feel that I cannot properly exchange with you or share with you the true depth of the concept, even if I were to say all truth statements all the time about it. If you are the sort of person that likes to know exactly how things are all the time, this is passages of the Bible that frustrates you. And if you're the sort of person that likes a good story, this is the passage of the Bible you love. This is where God's eye twinkles at you. Because there's such, it's beautiful mystery here. But there's, it's, it's mystery with a reason. It matters. It helps us appreciate what Jesus is or who Jesus is and who and what he is not. It's really important that you and I should know that Jesus is not simply a really special person. 
This story says he's not that. He's not a real, just a really special person. He's not a super improved version of you or a super improved version of me. He's not the model man. He didn't come from man. He's fully human, but he's so much more than that. So we don't want to say he's not human. He's all human, but he's a whole lot more than human. God. He's conceived by God. If he were of a man, there would be a thing that he would have in him that he does not have in him, and that is sin. To be of a man means that the sinfulness that is in mankind would have been passed to him. But he's not of a man. He does not carry in him the inherited sin of man because he doesn't come from the seed of man. He's, the Bible leans at this idea that he's like a second Adam. This tells me, it matters to me, because when I think of Christ as Savior, when I think of him as King and of Lord and of the, f- the fulfillment of the hope that all of mankind would be blessed and that the richness of God would be experienced through this man, Jesus, our Savior Christ, I know that it has something to do with sin because he doesn't have any of it. He's come to save us from our sin. So we could add this to the long, increasing list of what child is this? We could say Savior, he's King, he's hope of the world, he's findable and missable. He is the sin-free Son of God. The way in which he's unlike you is that sin has no power over him. The way in which he is the way in which we can anchor our hope in him is that he is fully righteous and fully man. He's fully God and fully man. And in that, he's trustworthy. That's who he is. Let's do one more reading. Luke chapter 2. This is, I call this the circumstances. So his genealogy, his visitors, his conception. Here's his circumstances. This is just six verses, six or seven verses in, in the second chapter. This is what Luke writes. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. <clears throat> and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room, excuse me, no place for them in the inn. Now, I hope by now you see a repetition of themes. A lot of things that should be familiar a lot of themes that are on top, but what's new here? And I think I could have said this earlier time, but I've, I've saved it for now. And it feels <clears throat> like this is the right place to talk about it. What's new here is this feels, when you read this, very historical. This reading is very historical, very matter-of-fact, very detailed, very much like a newspaper account 
very much where was somebody, why did they move, what happened, when did it happen, all of those sort of journalistic W's that people talk about, they're, they're here. In other words, Luke wants you to think, okay? Luke believes this is true, and he wants you to think it's true, that the story of the birth of Christ is not a fairy tale or a myth or an allegory. It really happened this way. Sometimes famous people become, uh, what, what, what do I say? What ends up happening to them is people put a little bit of dab of legend around their life. Uh, so King Arthur, we think, was real-ish, mostly legend. Okay? Someone like Robin Hood probably lived, mostly legend. Joan of Arc, real. But there's some things when you read all these stories, some part of you goes, ah, I don't know about that. You know, uh, Alexander the Great has these little dabs of sort of magical history, or Julius Caesar, just people who get larger. George Washington chopped down the cherry tree. That's our version of that. You know, you kind of tag something in to give it a little bit of elementary school life. That is not what Luke is doing here. This isn't, this isn't winsome. This is matter of fact. We could say it this way, the value of Jesus is not in symbolic power. It is described in real terms. The value and meaning of Jesus is what really happened. That's what we look to. And this is what I notice in this, that in all of this realness, the situation and circumstances throughout the whole story are, might be described as humble or hard or difficult. That just because Mary is about to give birth to the very Son of God, things don't get easy. She has to travel while pregnant from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. That's like 50 miles, which you might think not, not so big of a deal. But you have a minivan, right? She doesn't have a minivan. Big deal. She gives birth. Like She goes to a place. There's no room in the inn, right? She has to give birth in some sort of like stabled environment. Uh, exactly how it looks is long and subject to a lot of debate and study, but, but she's giving birth in the place where animals give birth. That's what she does. And hardship, humble hardship and life follow this story through in and throughout. Everywhere you look, you do not find a bias towards easy because the divine child is in her womb. You never find that. In fact, we might say this. From the birth of Christ, throughout the entire story and the witness of the life of Jesus Christ, you never once feel like, well, if I were close to Jesus, it would get easy. You never feel that way. And yet, so many of our songs and carols sort of lean that way. Like, I have in my mind the sort of thought, which I have to acknowledge, when it's in my mind, I have to say, that's not truth. That's just a happy thought. I like to think that Mary had an easy labor because, because, because it's God. Like, give her a break. There is no reason to think that. I know you want to think that. There's, we're not, I'm not saying you're, 
I, I absolutely was not that way. I'm saying there's, no, there's nothing in the Bible that's tipping your hand to think that. Go ahead and think it all you want. It doesn't help Mary out. <laughs> How, why would she have this seamless, relaxed, like epidural-like birth and still do it in a stable? Why is the whole story hard about, except for the one detail that we don't know that we make easy? Away in a manger. You know that song? One of the verses, you got to get the words right. The cattle are lowing. I'm not going to sing anymore. <laughs> but the baby awakes. But this little Lord Jesus, what does he not do? No crying. You see how we do this? You see? I just want us to acknowledge, we have in us, okay? It travels in us in, in some pretty profound ways. We have in us the continual assumption that if we were just close to the Lord, it would get easy. If we were just close to the Lord, it would get painless. And if I was just little, if just to be around Jesus, it would get really easy. Well, I know a lot of people in this Bible who are really close to Jesus, and it did not get easy. It never got easy. In fact, they considered it pure joy when they experienced trials and afflictions of all kind. Like when you say to Mary, it really got easy because you were close to Jesus. She might say to you, well, when, when was that time when I was standing at the foot of his cross? Was that when it was easy? But it's in us. Something in us wants to say, just to get close to him is to make it easy. And I would say, to get close to him is to be whole. To be close to Christ is to be full. And to be close to Christ is to be at peace. And those are not synonymous with easy. Those transcend the afflictions of this life. And that's what's promised us in this word. And so we could add to Christ, what child is this? We could say this. We could say he's the savior. He's the king. He's the hope of the world. He's findable, but he is missable. So watch out. He is the sin-free son of God who's come to save the world from sin and death. He's about eternal things. And walking after him in this life will require strength and faith and decision, and trust. That's what we can say about this child. Do you know him? Let me pray. Lord, we come to you now. We ask you bless the ministry of the word, the reading of scripture, Lord. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in each person in a way that's fitting to move them closer to you, Lord, not for ease, but for holiness. Lord, we acknowledge this morning the great work you've done on our behalf that you came into this world as us, but so much more, as us, but in some ways not like us, Lord. And for that, we thank you. We thank you that we can look to you for the cure and for the hope, that we can look to you for salvation and peace and wholeness. Lord, and we acknowledge that this is not a vague hope. This is a clear, historic hope that you were born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, that you were crucified, buried, and then on the third day resurrected. Lord, we proclaim this and acknowledge that you will return one day as a real judge, an arbiter. And for that, Lord, we cry for mercy. We pray this in Jesus.